This week on Invasion, the podcast, we venture forward in our year of animation as we learn about the power of friendship, sacrifice, and Cocoa Lax with 1999's The Iron Giant. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a spaceship. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. People of Earth, attention. It's the invasion of the podcast. The whole world is under attack. Can it survive? And welcome to Invasion of the Podcast, where we try to take over the world one listener at a time. Uh, I, I am um, now trying not to make a lot of noises in my chair. I just feel like I'm making a ton of noises. My name is Paul, and in the distant, far-off regions of somewhere n- n- near Leary, Ohio, is Steve. Hello, everyone. And we're joined by a secret special guest that we uh, we booked within minutes of finishing our last show. Uh, he is a familiar person uh, on the show. We've not had him for quite a while. It is it is Mr. El Goro of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Hey, guys. How's it going? Uh, wonderful. I just figure, you know, um, we kept it a secret because we didn't want the Russians to find out that you've crash-landed near our show uh, because... <laughs> The, the, the font of knowledge that you have can destroy worlds. So we wanted to make sure that we got to you first and we offered you a shingle that would basically be an iron Pringle for you. Um, well, I'll, yeah. I'll take that. I'll take that. Though I don't know if we, if we have to worry about the Russians. I'm more worried about Christopher McDonald just losing his mind <laughs> on me at some point. That is fair. So, yeah, it's our year of animation. We're going to be looking at 1999's The Iron Giant. Um, a, a sad, sad, sad admission of film I had never seen before. And after watching it, I realized how big of an admission that is. Um, and I, I know within seconds of me asking, hey, do you want to talk Iron Giant? You're like, yes, let's just do that. Yes. So, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and Steve, had you seen the film before? I had, yeah. It's okay. been a while. Uh, I thought I had it on DVD, and when I went to go check my collection, I'm like, I do not own the Iron Giant, so I immediately went and bought it. So, but yeah, I'd seen it before. Okay, cool. So, I, I want to frame this first because this is actually a nice uh, bit of um, a, a synergy, as they like to say in the biz. I don't know what biz, um, but. Um, Oh, Goro, and you're at Talk Without Rhythm podcast right now. You're having an entire month celebrating animation, which we were on previous last year talking about Star Wars, the Clone Wars, the, the miniseries, and then uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and had a great time. And I feel like uh, this is that month for that. And I figured you'd be wanting to talk about this. So tell, tell me, if you can, a little bit about why you always block off May for your animation. And I know you've been going a very... Um, very not anime that's probably i mean you've been watching a lot of more eastern stuff recently but uh it looks like a lot of childhood things that you've been coming back to yeah i mean the roots of it always went back to the fact that as a movie fan i have a deep and abiding love for animation and i think so much of that comes down to that for the majority of us our first exposure to the very concept of film 
generally comes through some sort of animated form. Whether you were raised on Disney films or anything like that, the generally the first kind of cinema we ever get exposed to, towards is animation. And I've carried that through my entire life, uh, gradually becoming a little bit more mature in my view, or not just you know a fan of more things with blood and monsters and gratuitous content. But at the same time, I still hold a, a great deal of love for the stuff that defined me at the earliest stage as a movie fan and the stuff that can still evoke that kind of feeling. So I've always tried to put a focus from time to time on Talk Without Rhythm on animation. And as the years have gone by, I've decided to mostly focus it on the month of May, allowing me to do that, you know, sly little wordplay of calling it my month of anime Shun. So yeah, it just com comes down to I've always been a fan of cartoons and I will continue to watch cartoons probably until I die. And yeah, a lot of the, the stuff that I've picked for this month's or this year's installment of animation has been very heavily leaning upon the Japanese side of things, mostly because the broader theme that I embraced this um, year was the dark and disturbing anime that I watched as a teenager which was the peak uh, anime watching time period for me. I, I dropped off shortly after that. We'll revisit it from time to time, but those early titles that were, as a teenager, me and my friends were just trying to seek out the weirdest and uh, most kind of out there stuff at a time when there were labels like uh, Media Blasters or um, Manga Entertainment mm -hmm. or uh, Urban Vision. They were just putting out all of this really interesting, very kind of outre kind of stuff from the late 80s into the early 90s, and that is sort of my sweet spot as a fan of anime. So that was broadly the theme that I was going for with this month, with a slight little aside to pay attention to some stop-motion animated films that, uh, one that I had never seen prior to watching it for the show, and one that was uh, I discovered as an adult and very, very, very much loved. Yeah, and I I, th I find it um, funny. Uh, this is it's just a pure coincidence by timing only that uh, you talk about like that time frame of trying to like always search for the weird. That it, some of that you know it, it was harder to find. Like I know back whenever uh, for for example, nineteen eighty nine, Iron Giant comes out. I was um, I was working um, at an amusement park. I was working at Cedar Point for people that are kind of local. They know that whatever at Cedar Point roller, roller coasters, yay. Uh, there was a Babbage's at that Sandusky Mall that I'm sure Steve knows about because he was near there. Uh, they would sell anime um, like uh, VHS, and that's where I got my copy of Perfect Blue because I was reading about it in Fangoria at the time. So mm -hmm. that felt like it just felt weird to me that like Babbage's would be the place that I'd be going to go find more um, like uh, not well known uh, animated material. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I, I had something similar because at the time when I was in high school, um, my mother was in the Air Force and we were stationed overseas in England. So really the only source for any kind of entertainment, unless you wanted to go onto the British economy, was our local base exchange. And despite the fact that it had to essentially be all imported and all uh, somewhat filtered through a 
somewhat of a lens of respectability, anime t- uh, tended to kind of slide through the cracks. Either they were not paying too much attention for the stuff that they were importing, or they just didn't care. They were just trying to fill the shelves <laughs> because there was some really kind of hard stuff that made it through onto that base exchange, something that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find on a military or- uh, organization, shall we say. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, uh, perfect. Um and, and again, um, I, I, I know you, you, and much like doing when I was doing my reading about Brad Bird here, and we'll get to the trailer for the film here in a second, but he's the, the writer, co-writer and director of this film. Anytime anybody like bring, uh, the notion of it being a, a kid's movie or family movie to a lot of his works, he'll be like, well, why, what's the, what's the difference? He's like, it's a film. Mm-hmm. And there was a big fight here. Um, that, you know, he, he wants to view it as like, you know, it, it's its own medium, it's its own art form, and it should be approached uh, like seriously as well. And I think, um, and it's been, a, it's a weird piggyback and I, and I maybe I'm stepping on the, the, my thoughts here a little too early, but going from something like the secret of them, which we covered on the show earlier, which was a revelation, like revisiting from being a child, you know, and watching it and then seeing it again to watching this one where it has some DNA with that film specifically, um, it, it it's just it's it's amazing to me like how this stuff is obviously treated seriously by the people making it, but they want it to be always talked about in the same like why why does there have to be the separation of like well that was good but it was animated. I think so much of it is simply cultural. The fact that the person who, for one way or another, largely defined animation in an American context was Walt Disney. And the animation that he created was primarily targeted towards a more youthful demographic. And that got reinforced as the years went on with his with the refocusing of Disney towards hyper hyper focusing upon the child experience. And even though the early Disney films and to to a certain extent, the majority of Disney's films are intended to be sort of universalist appeal for the for the uh, young and the young at heart. Uh, That was probably one of their catchphrases. At some point, <laughs> nevertheless, the the Disney effect has sort of set aside in the public's mind that cartoons are what are for children, despite the fact that pretty much from the birth of the medium, there has been adult fo- focused animation, not speaking of things that are explicit or pornographic. But when one considers a show like the Flintstones which I assume all of us watched, you know, on just kind of uh, syndicated reruns and they were part of children's cartoon blocks. That was a primetime show at the time it came out, you know, that that it, uh, Fred and Barney were doing cigarette ads. <laughs> so adult animation as a concept has existed, but over the years it has been largely more focused upon a child demographic. Now that particular tendency is certainly breaking down because the dominant sort of trend-setting and and artistically creating generation are at this point people that are broadly Generation X unto millennials. And we grew up at a time where we had one of the greatest focuses of animation pointed directly at us, Mm -hmm. the birth of the Saturday morning cartoon block, the birth of the after-school cartoon block. And so I think a lot of us have a greater affection for the animated form. On the top of that, we had the increased exposure to other forms of more mature animation coming from uh, points abroad. So the when we decided to start making things, it shifted. And now we we do have a broader uh, 
sort of appeal coming out of the animation of animation that's uh, intended to not only just appeal to kids, but appeal to everybody or be hyper focused upon adults. I mean, consider a show like Rick and Morty, which is tremendously popular. Sure, the kids watch it, but I'm sure that they weren't exactly courting a child's audience when they were putting that show together. Yeah, I just I I've, um that you're absolutely right. Uh, and Steve rebuttal. I'm joking. I know you're just uh, <laughs> you know. Um with with even the release of the Incredibles, uh, which is you know obviously a Brad Bird picture, everyone's like, "Oh, it's it's an animated superhero film." And he was like, "Yeah, and it's PG uh cuz it's intended for, you know, he's basically saying, "Yeah, it happens to be a film that's animated, but there's more going on than that." I think he always tries to struggle, not struggles at the right word. He always fights against like labels being attached to things. And I think for the better, I even think something like Pixar always is pushing the bounds of like, yeah, we're, we're making these experiences that would be, uh, if not more difficult to film live action, but also your uh, immersion might be better assisted if you could just like watch something animated as opposed to constantly being the uncanny valley of like, I don't know. It just, uh, there's so much stuff now that's like dripping with like the, the CG effects that it's hard to, to get involved in, but I think just mm-hmm. be, if you use a certain specific style, like uh, not to not to come back to my favorite film of all time, I'm, I'm joking, but it's up there, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, you could have done that live action. And it probably would have been great. It would have been really expensive, but I don't think that you get that climax with all like the crazy Jack Kirby colors at the end and have that same type of like just awe that you could have with, with what animation does. Um, so that, I guess I, I just I get frustrated when people they always they always kind of second class animation and I think that in a lot of in a lot of instances the effort that goes forth and the vision that comes out is actually probably a lot more established and um, uh, polished than some of the other things that we we hold up higher. Oh, definitely. And again, I do think that that sort of ghettoization of animation has it. The the sea has changed that there's not an immediate assumption that if it's animated, it's intended for children. And that has come as a result of people that are actively pushing things forward. And at the time that Brad Bird was making, you know, something like uh, the Iron Giant, it was still somewhat in that intended for children demographic. And some of that was was merely financial because, you know, the, at the end of the day, these are people that had to invest $50 million into this film. They're going to try to appeal to, his, to the best demographic for uh, seeing a return on that, which was certainly going to be children. However, what I find interesting about The Iron Giant is while it's clearly a film, one hesitates to use the, the phrase a children's film. It's, an, it's a film that has clear appeal for children. It nevertheless also has a transcendent appeal that can hit several different demographics. I mean, I was 14 when this came out, and I absolutely loved it. But it also marked a point where there were the arrival of other animated, theatrically animated films that were actively uh, courting, for lack of a better uh, term, my cohort, a teenage cohort. Because shortly after this, we would see the release of things like Titan AE and Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Not all of them were tremendous successes. And Lord knows Disney, when they tried to mature or go after an older boy demographic with their films like Atlantis or Treasure Planet, they didn't uh, see much success. But in all fairness, the Iron Giants didn't see much success either at its <laughs> top point of its original release. Yeah. 
So, all right, uh, Steve, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you've been um, you, you've been like carving something. You've been whittling on a, on the doorstep. Like, what are your thoughts here? Whittling on the doorstep is not really a phrase that's used. I just made that up. So yeah. So please. If anybody asks, that's an Ohio um, well, expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we all say that. As, as, as long with, with Opie, uh, O-P-E. Yeah, we, all, we all say Ope, and we all say uh, whittling on the doorstep. Sure, I've never used Ope as an expression, but whittling on the doorstep, I've said it three times now, it's official. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, again, this is somebody, and we all come from the same background of loving genre and also loving different, you know, mediums, whether it be film, animation, comic books. I, I, I look at comic books and I feel like they spend a lot of time doing the same thing that animation has done, where they're trying to get people to understand that just because it's in this form, it doesn't mean that it's either less or um, a lesser uh, presentation of a story. Uh, just because something's presented as a comic book just as if something is presented as an animated film doesn't necessarily mean it's either for kids or that it mean or, or that it means that it's something you can't enjoy uh, whether you have you know a, a a sense of a like heightened bar of entry um, and admittedly there's a lot of that with a lot of the comic book world as well but I feel like it's always struggling to get the attention of other people and say, Hey, you know, either we're not just for kids or, Hey, we've got awesome kids books, which is kind of where they're going now because a lot of, you know, the fan base is guys like me who are in their forties and they're losing the kids. So, uh, I think it's an interesting parallel. I think that when it comes to animation, I do think some of those barriers are finally getting broken down. I still don't understand the, the reticence that somebody might have to not see a Pixar movie other than like, if they're like, ah, it just doesn't look like it's my cup of tea, but it's <laughs> Pixar continuously pumps out quality films. Um, I, <laughs> I, I want to say, say this, uh, you know, half jokingly, but in all fairness, uh, the two movies that I watched this weekend were onward and Coco and those movies are just gorgeous. Uh, the color palettes are amazing. They're they're feature films. They're worthy of your attention. Um, and I don't think that you have to be a kid to get what those movies are saying. And they also broke me in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, uh, I'm apparently uh, uh, much uh, more prone to cry these days. I don't know what that is, but I'm like, oh, onwards. This should be fun. Oh my god, turn it off. Uh, I had to watch The Exorcist 3 on Joe Bob to get myself over watching Onward uh, once I finished it. That's, but, a, that's, uh, a, that's, that's a hard palate cleanse, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that – I do think that, that that you know it's eroding that, that definition that people sort of see, um, you know, oh, that's a kid's film or oh, you know, that's an animated film. Um, I think we still have a ways to go, unfortunately, in some respects to get people to just – understand that it's all storytelling it's all all the same thing now, now there are going to be things like I, I don't know what like the little kids are into that you'd show like the nick jr stuff like I, i'm gonna say like your clifford the big dog it was like those certainly aren't gonna have the most adult appeal but it shouldn't be a barrier to entry for a person to be like oh it's an animated film like i, I can't see 
I think it's going away, but I can't see how somebody would hold that against it. And something like the Iron Giant, I think, has far more uh, potent messaging and a uh, strong sense of uh, not only wonder, but of its own story that it it stands up there with some of the best movies that have come out like of that year and probably in the 90s. It's, a, it's one of the better films to come out of that decade. So, And if you give me enough time to just keep talking and talking, I'll just hang myself with rope. And keep trying to think of the words. No, you're, so yeah, it's, you too. No, you're, you're just a broken, shattered man after watching Onward and Coco on the same weekend, and then The Iron Giant. So we'll get, we'll, you know, we'll send you an edible arrangement, and then one day when we could all see each other, I'll give you a hug. Um, but yeah, well said. So let's just um, now it's officially 20 minutes into the show, so we've probably played the trailer for the movie, and then we can talk about The Iron Giant in full. ago, SATCOM radar detected an unidentified object entering Earth's atmosphere. Invaders from Mars. Some assumed it was a large meteor or a downed satellite. This is no meteor, gentlemen. <laughs> this is something much more dangerous. <laughs> For the government. Now, why would you tell your mom about a giant robot? Mom! Ah, no privacy! Sorry. What are you talking about? Where's the giant? For some reason, the army is in our front yard, Mr. Mansley. We must stop it at all costs. Go to Code Red! Repeat, Code Red! We've got to help him! Hogarth, no! We gotta hide! Hey, stop! There's a kid in his hand! You can't protect him, Hogarth. Warner Brothers Family Entertainment presents the story of a young boy and a giant from another world you can fly who became a hero on this one you can fly the Iron Giant And little do we know that we all learned at that point in time that Vin Diesel is um, better heard and not seen and also with limited vocabulary. <laughs> Whatever. I'll, yeah. I'll fight people. I'll fight people. The director's cut of Chronicles Riddick is actually pretty good. But uh, I'll uh, fight people that all three of them are decently entertaining. I haven't seen Riddick. I've seen the first two. But uh, yeah, so uh, 1999's The Iron Giant. Um, let's see here. We'll just, uh, let's see. Uh, co-written by Tom, uh, McCandley's and Brad Bird, uh, based upon the book, the iron man, um, by, um, Oh, it's, I didn't get the guy's first name here. The last name is Hughes. Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes. 
Uh, and so we got, um, it is starring uh, Jennifer Aniston as Annie Hughes, Harry Connick Jr. as Dean McCoppin, who runs the scrapyard. I like that name because, you know, McCoppin and scrap. I see what you did there. Uh, Vin Diesel as himself and the Iron Giant. Uh, James Gammon as Foreman Marv and Floyd uh, Tuberow. Uh, Cloris Leachman. Uh, we needed more of her, but Miss uh, Tinsage. Christopher McDonald. I want to talk about him a lot because I love him as Kit Mansley. Um, and John Mahoney, uh, General Rogard. Eli Marenthal as Hogarth. I guess I buried the lead there. He's the lead of this. Uh, Hogarth Hughes and M. Emmett Walsh as Earl Stutz. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, with, with, the, with you, Al Goro, and you're talking about rhythm, you do a really good job, usually like a foundation for the film by giving a brief synopsis and then kind of giving some background. And while Steve and I just, we wander around like um, bulls in China <laughs> shops and knocking over shelving and then realizing like, I was going to make a point. Oh, I just stepped on it. It's broken. Why is there glass and blood all over? Good night, folks. Like that's, that's where we're at. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, uh, I actually did take notes for this, so I don't know where I, I think, do we want to, Steve, what, what's this film about? Tell us, enlighten us. What on your front store, front doorstep? All righty. Uh, the basic synopsis is, uh, Hogarth is a young boy in 1957. Uh, this is definitely the, uh, um, fear of communism, uh, era of, uh, time here in the U S uh, becomes the friend with a befriends, be I should say, a uh, giant robot, uh, an iron giant, if you will. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm terrible at synopsizing. Like, no, you got most so, of the film so far. Keep going. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I just feel like I'm in class trying to uh, uh, impress everybody uh, with my knowledge. Uh, Steve, do the book report. Uh, all right. Um, and it was a it tale was, of two cities. Exactly. <laughs> and they were no longer little girls. They were little women. Um, so, uh, long story short, um, the government catches wind of the Iron Giant's existence uh, and a very um, paranoid, I guess is the best word to use for his character, um, government agent uh, is on the case. And Hogarth, uh, while not only trying to hide the Iron Giant, teaches him about not only uh, see. This is where I, I don't want to say that he teaches him about morals, but like he he does. He, he teaches, teaches him, him. He teaches him right from yeah. wrong morality, and teaches him that he can be whatever he wants to be. He doesn't have to be, you know, what the world thinks he is or what he was designed to be. Right. right. So. And I, I feel like I'm uh, stepping on the point of the film in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, uh, and it becomes basically a, a, you know, Cold War example of or a Cold War example, a, a uh, example of the government uh, during the Cold War uh, and its fear of not only the Russians, but of new technology. There you go. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> That's your film right there. Congratulations, Steve. Uh, gold stars all around. So We are now all dumber for having a <laughs> Steve. Oh, hush. Come on, man. 
Um, so yeah, I just I guess where I wanted to go with this is that uh, just a little bit of background on 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 Brad Bird before we get into this proper. This, these are things that I I crammed off the internet, so um, your mileage may vary, but. Uh, he actually um, was mentored by uh, a gentleman named by Milt Call, uh, one of Disney's uh, nine old men that were like, and I guess two of the voices in this were also from some of the nine old men, like the big pillars of animation for Disney, like in their golden age. So he um, he he had like a background and had an appreciation. Bird worked as an animator, uh, uncredited on um, the Black Cauldron and the Fox and the Hound. Uh, but he actually got um, fired mid-production for Fox and the Hound because he was uh, griping that Disney wasn't taking chances anymore with animation. Um, I just said that when I when I said earlier that this ties into um, Secret and M, he was in the same work area that Don Bluth had worked in called The Rat's Nest, I believe what it was called. And so you could tell Bluth had his own opinions about what Disney was willing to do and not do. So I think he and uh, Brad Bird are they're, um, kindred spirits in a lot of ways. So they both got... Uh, removed from Disney because they had different opinions or they, you know, I, I think Bluth left those own terms. Um, but then later on bird would actually uh, be like, he would be a consultant for the Simpsons and be there for a number of seasons and help develop their animation style. And now that I realize this, seeing some of the, um, some of the snappy back and forth of some of the sequences, I, I can see the Simpsons in there because some of the jokes here just land real well because of timing. And he actually wrote the animated episode of Amazing Stories called Family Dog, which went on to be its own series for like a season on CBS. Steve, do you remember Family Dog? I do. I, I, I was going to revisit it uh, before we got to this episode or before uh, tonight, and I didn't get a chance. I was too busy crying. <laughs> but yes, I, I remember Family Dog. I actually remember when that aired on Amazing Stories and just being blown away by it. So... Yeah, it was exciting um, that it got I, a series. It, it's funny because I, I do associate him with The Simpsons too. Um, but I was looking over like the amount of episodes that he was a part of, and I was amazed at how many there were because I was thinking it was more of a Conan O'Brien thing where you get like a season's worth of episodes that he was a part of, and like maybe a handful that he was really behind. Brad Bird is probably from. I don't know at what point he joins, but there's at least, I think, 100 episodes that he's sort of involved with. So he's a big piece of that start, at least, of The Simpsons, the first 10 years, if you will. Yeah, and he also helped out with King of the Hill and The Critic, with Critic, with the T, The Critic, which, you know, that's that shows that's aged pretty well, actually. So he he has a background in helping like de- like developing animation styles and also i mean if you're around people working on the simpsons there's no there there's no possible way that that some of that uh, mentality and humor doesn't just like become part of you right so I, I just think that was important bringing it into this. And then also, uh, El Gore, I'm sure you could speak to this because uh, he wrote the screenplay for Batters Not Included, which you just recently covered um, back in September for your science fiction episodes, correct? Yep. He was one of the people that worked on that off of the original story from uh, Mick Garris. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that part. So, um, yeah. So he, he brings a pedigree into this. I mean, we can all talk about Brad Bird now. Obviously, he's hugely influential with Pixar. Um, he did The Incredibles. He did Ratatouille. He did The Incredibles 2. Um, he, and he's worked in some capacity uh, doing some other stuff with Pixar. And he went to school with John Laster and some other guys out in California. 
Um, and then he also directed still my favorite, uh, mission impossible film, which I know Steve loves the series. Um, I still think ghost protocol is my favorite of that series. And that was his first live action. And I think that movie's awesome. Uh, no, I so, definitely agree. So I, I like Brad bird. I've not seen Tomorrowland. I know we've shit on the show forever. Um, but I've not seen that, but I love Brad bird. But anybody else want to throw it? I'm sorry. I just, I, I just stopped talking. I just, I was like, <laughs> no, you're I, love, fine. You're I, fine. I love yeah, Brad Bird. I, I, I am, I am right there with you. And he's one of those guys that existed in a sort of behind the scenes role for the longest time, worked on a heck of a lot of stuff that was very much reaching over into the pop culture, but never really made a name for himself until the iron giant. And then was able to follow it up with the success of something like the Incredibles and Ratatouille. But to me, the, thing that will always be most associated with him would be the iron giant his directorial it well it has it's just such a well-realized film and has such a very close uh, place in my heart yeah and i'll give credit to i was reading about um the the co-writer because they brought tom uh, canley's in to help with the script and i guess they didn't know each other but the studio was like we need somebody else to come in here and and i know brad was originally kind of like ah, i'm gonna do this on my own uh, and one of his original scripts had uh, the giant just dying and then and then the u.s and russia being in a cold war and uh McCandless is like you don't kill et and not bring him back which i think <laughs> like informed a lot of the movie in a lot of ways. And when he, when he, when he framed it like ET, when I was reading this, I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I know there's the formula, but there's a reason you give a shit about things as you watch a film. And, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of shaped a little bit of this. Um, but yeah, I just want to give credit to him cause he actually brought that back in. Cause otherwise this, I think this would have been, um, even a more depressing of an ending than the movie was in there. <laughs> well, that's the, th- that's the thing that, you know, when people talk about the iron giant and I'm guilty of this myself, you had posted up earlier, uh, Paul, that they were watching it for the first time, or you had posted that you had watched it then for the first time. Yes. And immediately I, I posted something and I was like three other people posted it, <laughs> uh, a yes. deliberate reference to one of the most dramatically poignant oh. scenes in the entire film. One of those things that just sticks with you enough so that it does overshadow the fact that this film ultimately ends on a happy note, on a hopeful note. But it is that the emotional heft of that scene that really does uh, land with the majority of the audience. And I do think without that softening influence of that end, perhaps this film wouldn't be as well-remembered as it was before, as it is now. I just think people would just be like, yep, that ruined my childhood, and that was that, yeah. right? So, like, to, to quote my wife, we watched the film. She had never seen it before either, um, so it was actually a first-time watch for both of us while watching it. We got to the end, and, and it's it's funny, and I know we're talking about the end, but just if, if people have not seen this film, please watch The Iron Giant. I'm going to make my impassioned, super impassioned plea of, like, if you've not watched it, watch it. I'm going to throw the same heft behind it for Secret of Nim. Like, the, it's, it's, a, it's a goddamn amazing movie. Just watch it. Um, but her and I were watching it the first time and I can see out of the corner of my eye, like she took off her glasses. So I'm like, here comes the tears. And I'm just like, I'm not judging her. Cause I'm like, I'm about to cry too, but that's fine. Just take, you know, it's fine. The movie, the, the, the credits start playing. And she said, she's like, F this movie. And I was like, why would you say F this movie? She's like, cause I'm crying and sad. I'm like, that's the point of the movie to make you feel feelings. And I was like, and you shouldn't say F the iron giant. That was a great film. And she's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, I wanted to be like, you owe the iron giant an apology. You shouldn't use harsh language around it. <laughs> But how yeah. dare you make me feel something real? <laughs> well, and so 
uh, and again, this is me always. This, I'm going to smash through this like a bowl of china shop. I'll say, and 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 Steve, you can speak to this, and I'm sure I'm sure you too can, El Goro, with like just the amount of film and content that you absorb, and you're you do this at a much better clip than I do. There's a certain amount, not numbness that happens, but there's a certain amount of disconnect sometimes while watching media, where it's like you're liking and enjoying it, but unless it gets its 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 like like nails into you deep. Sometimes stuff that is good only comes across as okay because it, it, it's not digging into you because you've seen so much. And it's hard for me to always wipe the slate clean and watch something again and be like, okay, first time, fresh watch, see what's going to happen. Because when you get to tropes and conventions and like, you know, machinations of these films, you know where it's going to go. Sometimes the emotional resonance that everybody in working on the film has aspired to doesn't hit. It doesn't hit me the same way because I'm used to so many things. This was a film that I knew everyone's like, oh, it's going to make you cry. And it's like, great. So you already kind of have that shield built up. But then it's like you get to the end and it's like it just thing. It just just ripped that like that carapace off. And it was like, we don't care what you know. You're going to give a shit about this and you're going to cry. And I'm like, okay, Iron Giant, you win. You know, like, and in the best possible way, it's been, it's been a long time since I've had like a nice, like great drawn in emotional reaction to a film. And that, that was a welcome feeling. So, yeah, exactly. And it's, and the fact that it does have that impact for people that are essentially primed for it as you were, it goes on to speak of just how how earned it is how true to its storytelling it is because as you mentioned it is this film is largely operating upon many established tropes i mean uh, tim mccandless mentioned the whole et parallel to it and that's certainly there but at the same time the fact that it can still deliver that sort of emotional punch it's to somebody who's again primed for it, whether they're primed by the traditions or then the tropes or primed by people talking about it. It shows you just what, how spectacular this film is. I mean, well, it's like when people talk about a horror film and say, oh, it's the scariest movie ever. There's a tendency amongst horror fans to, you know, treat that as a challenge and thus view it, view the end up viewing the film in rather harsh terms. If it doesn't live up to that. Nobody seems to have that response with the Iron Giant in terms of its emotional impact. Everybody I've spoken to who has seen this film has been impacted by this film. Yeah. And so, Steve, like after you watched every Pixar film this weekend and, and cried through all of them, including Cars 2, which is a weird choice, but whatever, I'll allow it. How do you, um, you know, like what, what, what's your what's your emotional resonance with this film? So I was just going to say on that topic, I think in a lot of ways, sometimes the way a movie will hit me, the thing that's supposed to get me isn't the thing that gets me. Um, And I I know that sounds kind of weird to say, um, but for instance, there's kind of a switch that happens in, and I'm not going to give it away in in Onward, but um, you think you know what the story is about. You think it's about this kid getting to meet his dad, who's supposed to be there for one day uh, because he passed away before he was born. And he doesn't have a memory of his father, but it turns into this other thing uh, that hits me so much harder. Um, in the case of Iron Giant, while the ending and the sacrifice that he makes is certainly something that's sad and, and does, you know, go for the the go for your gut. I guess is the best way of putting it. 
Um, to me, the thing that, uh, at least upon this rewatch, that like really hit me is the line because uh, it's 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 the line where I feel like he he gets his soul, or he we get we get who the Iron Giant is as a character is the moment where he says, "I am not a gun." That moment just knocked me on my ass last night when I was rewatching it. Um, and I'm actually getting like a little like weepy as I'm thinking about it. It's what's at the core of that character. And, you know, the, the sacrifice that comes later certainly plays into that, that he chooses to protect people and, and, and uh, sacrifice himself for the town, even though the town in a lot of ways uh, wasn't there for him, I guess is the best way of putting it, uh, or at least the army. I, I think that those are moments that are, yes, are, are programmed to move plot, to give you the defining moment for that character. Uh, but just for me personally, the moment that got me was that, that line about, you know, that I'm not a weapon, I have a soul, I'm something more. Uh, um, and it, it, I don't mean that to take away from that big moment. I just mean that uh, it was the thing that stuck out the most to me as I was watching it and how much of the soul of that film just is in that one line. Oh, and, and that's yep. fair. Yeah. I, 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 so I don't know if you know this bit of trivia. It is, it is, this is sadder than the movie itself. So that, that statement of I am not a gun was added, like maybe not the line of dialogue, but the, the, the goal, some of the themes of the movie, some of this was added later because during the production of the film, uh, Brad Bird's uh, sister was shot and killed by an estranged husband and a murder suicide. So he wanted to add more of an anti-gun um, message, anti-violence message into the film, and he ended up, uh, you know, pitching it as like, "What if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun?" So I think that line, you said it knocked you on your ass. I think that that was Brad Bird being as as direct and in your face as possible of like, you know, just because this is a thing does not mean it needs to be used to kill others. And reading that after watching the film. It just gives you chills. Oh, definitely, definitely. And it's interesting that that would have been considered a, a sort of uh, after the a, after the fact addition to it, or at least later in the production, because it seems to fit in so much, so very well with the other themes of this of this film, particularly the themes of fear of the technology. I mean, so much of this this movie opens up with an image of Sputnik, yes. which was the great uh, fear of everybody in, uh, uh, during this time period. The fact that our most hated enemies, the evil empire, the Soviet Union, had launched this satellite that's circling the Earth, and they did it before us. We don't know what it's doing or what it's doing up there. When really, if you look into Sputnik, all it does is beep. It, it, <laughs> it literally just beeps, and then people can say, yep, it's beeping right now. Yep, it's beeping right now. It's not very impressive, but it's impressive in the terms of, you know, our development of our space program. That fear and the what uh, would be considered to be the logical reactions to that fear and that propulsion towards destruction that that fear evokes it's so point. It's so powerful that a lot of people kind of tend to lose sight of the fact that everything terrible that humanity does is ultimately down to a choice. We choose to do terrible things. Now we could have very strong reasons for doing these terrible things. We may feel that we are put into a, a point where there's no decision. However, 
at its core, at its philosophical core, every element of inhumanity to man, man's inhumanity to man, comes down to a choice to do that. And when the giant says, I am not a gun, he is essentially showing us that we do have a choice. He was built as an instrument of destruction. He chose not to be that. And that sort of peaceful message, it's while it's a change from what was originally written within uh, Ted Hughes, because the climax of that film involved him ha- getting into a burn-off with a, dra- a space dragon the size of Australia. It's a very interesting book. Um, <laughs> you have my money. Same time, I, I need to watch that. The, I, you have my money. I want to watch this version of Pacific Rim now. I need to see this. Yeah. <laughs> well, they don't fight. They just say, hey, who can, who can stand and fire longer? And... Uh, <laughs> The giant wins. Um, <laughs> That's, that sounds like that. That sounds like a, like a, an Alabama Sunday a Saturday night. Like, hey, it kind of does. How long can you stand in fire? I don't know, longer than you. <laughs> but that's that sort of narr- narrative of world peace was was present within the original book. It gets re it gets re evoked here, but does so in a much more personal and decidedly more American way, considering that you know this was an American production, whereas the original Iron Man novel was from a British writer. And only got uh, changed Iron Giant because they didn't want to deal with any Marvel copyright claims. Yeah, I mean, like I, so I didn't look into this as much as maybe I should have. Um, with this being produced by Warner Brothers, what Warner Brothers did? Did they? I know that they had some of the animation stuff. Was, were they actually all under the same banner with DC at that point, or was it still like a, a um, working arrangement? In terms uh, of Steve could probably speak to this more, but at this point, Warner Brothers definitely owned. D- uh, I think they own DC at this point, right, Steve? Yeah, they own DC at this point. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like uh, I think even going back to the original Superman, um, they had the rights initially to it, and they let the film rights go. That's how the Salkins picked it up. Um, the film was still distributed through Warner Brothers, but uh, there were many, many years, and you might even say they still don't understand some of the things that they own uh, <laughs> at this point. Uh, but uh, Warner yeah, Brothers looks like, definitely. Yeah. Looks like they picked them up in 1976. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> uh, just because I was just like, uh, again, first time watching the film and then seeing uh, Hogarth bring out his comics to show the giant. Cause that's what a kid would do. And I, I don't, I want to get back to the notion of the town being named Rockwell because I know it's so on the nose, but it's amazing. Uh. Oh, it's incredibly on the nose. However, my twisted mind is uh, thinking, "Well, God, this is set in Maine. Something terrible is going to happen here." <laughs> well, I mean, it's a you Stephen know, King fan of me. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, I mean, maybe something bad did happen, kind of, and people were sad. I just wanted to say too, real quick, on the comic book thing. Uh, one of the comics that uh, he shows him is Spirit, which is uh, you know Will Eisner's creation. I actually don't have a lot of issues of the spirit. I've probably read uh, maybe somewhere between like 12 and and 20, like probably a year's worth of comics uh, or, or of a run, I should say, of uh, his comic. But A, I thought it was a, I'd forgotten that it pops up in the movie, but also uh, at one point Brad Bird wanted to do an animated spirit movie uh, and finding that out, I'm like, oh my God. You mean we could have had that instead of the Frank Miller <laughs> spirit movie? Like, give Brad Bird the spirit all day long, making an animated movie, do it in Will Eisner style. It would be amazing. So I just oh, wanted yeah. to throw that out there real quick. 
Well, he certainly seems to have the have the sensibility in order to to accurately capture and encapsulate what would have what made the spirit a compelling character and an enduring character um, for so many decades. And uh, I mean, he certainly exhibited that with his evocation of Superman. And said it got handed off into kind of a, a, a whingy right right wing edge lord, uh, much as <laughs> Superman eventually got uh, picked up by that. So it's kind of curious, yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I, Jeez, I, you see, Paul. We, I managed to segue into the whole Zack Snyder. Congratulations! You're right. Uh, you're right. We did pivot into that. No, um, yeah, no. Uh, the the day that HBO Max launches officially, just throw that. Which, by the way, brief aside there. Uh, and Steve and I talked about doing this for your animation. We've been uh, we've been kind of treading in some familiar waters in the sense of like a lot of American cinema. Um, we've been, I, I've been wanting to to branch out to other things too, and it's just it's tough to always pinpoint where you want to go. HBO Max has a lot of the Miyazaki things, which that was part of the deal that when they yep. signed up. So, uh, cause like trying to find that stuff streaming without buying was really hard. And we were, cause we we're going to do some Miyazaki things, which I know that's, that's also studio Ghibli and not just him, but uh, we've been considering that, but now that Max is official, like and launched, um, and we may already have it depending upon like cable provider. It may have upgraded automatically, that's going to be a whole wonderful breadth of content for us to explore because I know I've never seen any of his stuff and I don't think Steve has either. Um, so anyway, uh, that's the positive of HBO Max. The, the negative is that there's a Snyder Cut coming out and eh, whatever. I echo what Steve yeah. said all, uh, before the recording. I hope the fans of him like it. Yeah. I am not a fan of when Zack Snyder does traditional superheroes because yeah. I don't think his particular sensibilities are the right fit for a character of hope like Superman who under Zack Snyder's pen doesn't want to be Snoop Superman and then let his father die. Yes. Um, so we, Steve, can, we can have a very long discussion on that because <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah. And um, you know, and that's not too much of a deviation because again, in the Iron Giant, the symbol, the paragon of goodness, the the thing the uh, giant aspires to be, and the one word uh, line of dialogue he delivers in one of the most poignant scenes of animation ever. And yes, I'll easily uh, uh, put up the Iron Giant against anything that Miyazaki and Ghibli had done over their tenure in Japan. It is to evoke Superman. And it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and that's one of the core elements of his character that I appreciate. And unfortunately, that's it's it doesn't seem to be cool to li to uh, like Superman that is just unambigu unambiguously good. Yeah, I, I I'm not cool because that's that's the Superman <laughs> that I like. So I I I, I could go on about. Uh, the problems that I have with the Superman who doesn't want to be Superman, but uh, in the same aspect, I was trying to make this reference last week on our Empire Strikes Back show, where I was just trying to talk a little bit about the what it is that attracts me to certain characters, and, and with Superman, it's it's this person who has all this power, and above all of it, he chooses to do good. Um, one of my favorite Superman stories, and I know I'm going on a tangent here is uh, For All Seasons, um, and it's mm -hmm. uh, a story about Superman's origins in a lot of ways, but it's it really kind of covers his first year as Superman. 
And what's great about that story is, is that Lex Luthor at one point puts a challenge to Superman with a biological weapon that Superman can't stop. It's one of the few things that he can't stop. And the fact that he he's put in a place where all of his powers don't matter is it's it's what happens with why the first Superman, his father dying of a heart attack works is because it's a thing he can't stop with all of his powers as opposed to like, just let me die in this tornado, son. Um, I, I, I'm very much attracted to the character who, when presented with that, that choice does good. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't do interesting stories about the character who does bad, but that's the, the thing that when I look at a character like Superman or last week, as I was trying to explain with Luke Skywalker, who, you know, is given this choice to, you know, go to the dark side, go to the light side. Uh, Those are the things that interest me. And I think with Superman, a dark Superman is just boring to me. (laughs) So I I don't, you know, it's not what I want to (laughs) see. And personally, I'm, I'm of the opinion that everybody who complains about Superman being passe, Superman being outdated, Superman not being able to write compelling stories about Superman, they should be required to read Joe Kelly's uh, issue of Action Comics, his story, What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. And if you don't want to read it, watch the animated adaptation, which was Superman versus the Elite. It is a direct critique on those people who were critiquing Superman for being too boring or out of touch or having no place in a quote unquote modern world. Yeah. If, if that's the one I'm thinking of, it's got a very interesting conclusion to how Superman comes up to the, the to solve the, the issue at the end of the story. Right. Yeah. And it's one okay. of the things that I enjoy to me, the best Superman stories should be about transcending the limitations and without compromising the morality. Whereas less interesting Superman stories are, well, let's let's put him in a thing where he has to compromise his morality because, you know, that that's actually interesting. That's compelling. It's like, no, 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 that's just cheap. That's you as a writer saying, I am not a good enough writer to figure out to engage with the morality of Superman. Yeah. And and as far as like the whole Boy Scout thing goes, I've heard that be the complaint that people have had as well. And I will just often point out that, you know, while they're not the same character and there are a lot of differences, if you can't figure out how to do Superman in a contemporary sense, just look at what Marvel did with Captain America. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Winter Soldier came out after Man of Steel, and I was like, there you go. That's how you do a Superman story. Yep. Totally agree. So uh, tying it back to the Iron Giant. Uh, <laughs> well, no, no, I think that's valid. That actually, that, that actually did uh, connect into one of the more heated debates I ever gotten with the Iron Giant because you know the internet is full of the ter- full of terrible people, and thus uh, the internet <laughs> is the worst. But there was, of course, a thread. You know, the people that like to ask those uh, rather pedantic questions of, "Well, why didn't they do this in the movie?" Oh, they call and them potholes. There was somebody yeah. who was questioning the fact. Was like, well, he has these giant guns that can, you know, make huge explosions. Why didn't he just uh, shoot the nuke instead of uh, running into it? I'm like, you do not understand this film. You, <laughs> you fundamentally do not understand this film. May God have mercy on your soul. <laughs> because again, they just established 
in a, in a line of dialogue that he is not a gun. He chose not to b- embrace that side of his being, and that meant sacrificing himself. You dumb, dumb, <laughs> dummy, dumb, dumb person. I wish I could swear on this podcast. You can. You're the you're the one person that can say the f bomb. If you want to drop it, I'm drop not going to hold it for a. Uh, it's the most opportune moment. Well, that's fair enough. Um, you, <laughs> I give you. You get the golden. You get the golden ticket for the f bombs, unless it's Steve. <laughs> Then I censor them later. It's fine. Um, That's you know, no, I, I, I would. I would just also say for that plot point of when we found out that the missile tracks to where he's at anyway. Like, how? What's his range of his guns? Is the city doomed anyway? Like, flying up is the right is the right decision. But um, not that. Not that I've read this because so this is me speaking out of my ass uh, and just whittling on my doorstep. I. Um, I feel like with the juxtaposition of him like choosing to sacrifice versus being this living weapon is also a lot of ways of like, when you talk about interesting Superman stories, there's the, the idea of the Superman red sun about like, if he landed in a different spot, his priorities might be different, you know? Mm. And so being encountering with this kid versus like the kid who makes the active choice to save his life because at the beginning of that, we didn't even get into like when he goes into the power grid and, and, and Horgoth, like he, um, he turns off, which by the way, conveniently placed on off switch, but whatever. It's a story. It's like, you got to like, Hey, Hey, a kid could walk up and just turn off this power grid. Maybe not the right place to put a power switch that I'm, I'm, it's just, it's just a statement. I don't care either way. I think it's a wonderful film. Um, but whenever the giant comes up to him and throws out the power switch to him to be like, basically you, he's looking at him being like, why? Why did you choose to do this? And then we get the flashback later that um, before he hit the power switch, his programming was telling him to kill the kid. Like, it's a very quick moment, but it's very telling. And I, I don't know. I loved, I love that duality. I love, um, I love that this film doesn't just immediately become the misunderstood monster, though uh, I, think, I think because of... Um, of Kent's character lying to his, uh, his um, superiors about the intent of the giant. That's what causes the conflict versus like, cause you talk about the townspeople not being maybe very grateful. They were all very grateful because he saved the two kids and they were just kind of an awe. Like they weren't scared. They mm-hmm. were in awe. So it, it could have easily turned to King Kong and it didn't, you know? And, Respect to the film, and I and I just got to ask to piggyback onto what you've been doing on your Patreon for your show, Talk Without Rhythm, where people want to like you know, check that out because he always makes amazing content. You've been walking through um, with with a lot of rhythm. Give yourself credit. Uh, the, all, all the Godzilla films, um, yep. and so I think you have to be keenly aware and ridiculously in tune to the notion of like a power that an individual cannot can possibly compete with, but how do you survive and exist around this? And I think that Godzilla is an apt metaphor. And also, I mean, to get into the whole notion of like this, this movie is set in 57. What was Japan thinking about at the time? You know, <laughs> well, they, they, they were currently in the, uh, in the middle of a, I think they were just on the cusp of a new economic boom for them. So they were rebuilding and things were going pretty decent at that point, but there was still that lingering sentiment of, Wow, that happened to us, and part of part of part of it may have been our fault, but part of it may not have been. So, yeah, it, it, it was a complicated time for Japan, for sure. As but it frequently is for any country. But Godzilla, like, and, and again, this was not supposed to be the Godzilla cast, but whatever. That's what we're talking about right now. Um, sure. it, he's a force of nature, so in the sense of like he's going to do what he needs to do, and sometimes 
uh, you know, his means to an end doesn't always line up with what the humans are thinking are going to happen. And I think that there is that, that fear with the iron giant of like, yeah, the kid's been teaching him and showing him the way, but his, his ultimate goal unknown to himself may not line up with those around him. And I think there's a certain, there's that certain, like that, that 50 sci-fi mentality of the fear of the unknown, which I know that plays in directly into this film. And then there, even earlier when he's Hogarth's watching the, the wonderful uh, movie about the brain that hits the floor is skulking <laughs> around going to kill the guy, which I love that beat. I think it's wonderful. There, this, there's that there, you 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 were you were right talking about earlier about that 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 fear that tapped in fear of technology and the unknown, and the unknown enemy, and I credit to this film that it, it gave that it established that it didn't give into the exception of one character, and I want to talk more about Kent in a minute because he is he's unique and I and I, I love hate this guy so much. Yeah, and th- I, that I think I believe that was a deliberate evocation on behalf of Brad Bird because so much of the fifty science fiction was dealing with those sort of technologically based anxieties, and to engage with them on that level, even just down to the design of the Iron Giants, and then work to actively subvert that, to work into creating something di- uh, different and more modern one one would uh, be tempted to say. I think that was one of the great things that he did. You know, he's actively utilizing the tropes of an era that he obviously holds a great deal of affection for. I mean, consider this, consider The Incredibles, and consider some of the aesthetics of Tomorrowland, even if you haven't seen the film. It's clear Brad Bird holds holds this sort of um, Hugo Gernsbachian vision of science fiction in a very high regard. But he still he doesn't limit himself to the storytelling tropes of them. He takes his knowledge of this era of this genre and then uses it as a springboard to tell his stories. Yeah, and this film is repeatedly smart. Like I, I like, um, and Steve, I feel like you're gonna you're gonna bring a point in. It's probably better than mine. Um, if you want to jump in, please step on me. I'll just keep blathering on. Um, so yeah, please. I, I didn't actually have a point. Oh, okay. Uh, well, can you make up one right now, to, please, for for all I of us? To, <laughs> no, I, I wanted to ask El Goro just a question. Um, uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to the Godzilla Patreon episodes uh, as of yet, but I did want to ask what is. And I made this distinction last week when we were talking about the Empire Strikes Back, where I said I'm not saying it's the best movie ever made when I say it's my favorite movie. But I'm asking you, what is your favorite Godzilla movie? Because I'm I'm curious. Because going back to HBO Max, I noticed they've got a bunch of Godzilla movies <laughs> on there, and I want to jump in. So I'm just curious, what's your favorite? It's 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 rough. It's a rough thing to kind of uh, uh, try to classify, um, mm-hmm. mostly because there have been so many distinct eras of Godzilla and the aspirations of, and um, the achievements of what they can do in one era were wildly different of what they were doing in subsequent eras. Um, Out of the first uh, era of Godzilla that ran from 1954 to 1975, commonly referred to as the Showa era. I'm a huge fan of a film like destroy all monsters just because it's a gigantic, uh, no holds barred, 
monster throwdown. That said, I mean, clearly the first Godzilla from that era, from 1954, is a is a classic that has lost none of its potency over the decades since its existence. Um, my personal favorite era of Godzilla movies is currently the era that I'm in the middle of, which is called the Heisei era, that broadly launched with uh, 1984's uh, Return of Godzilla, which is kind of weird because technically the the uh, the new Japanese emperor didn't come in until near the end of the 80s and the 90s, so you technically shouldn't refer to that as the Heisei era, but whatever, <laughs> that's what we call it. And then ran all the way up to um, mid-90s, I want to say, with Godzilla versus uh, Destroya. Uh, uh, it's a great era of films. Um, don't know what my favorite would be out of there, though. And the other ones, I mean, I'm a huge fan of stuff like uh, Godzilla Final Wars, huge fan of something uh, more modern like Shin Godzilla. But there are very, to put it this way, there are very few Godzilla films that I actively dislike. And so far, we've only talked about one of them on, on this little retrospective that I've done. Oh, okay. All right. I was just curious because uh, I am looking to, uh, to jump in and uh, I haven't really visited them with the exception of, say, the Dean Emmerich, or Roland Emmerich, <laughs> Dean Devlin uh, masterpiece that was 1998's Godzilla. I haven't, oh, uh, I'll be getting there one day. <laughs> I haven't uh, dug in recently, so I'd be curious. I, I, I want to go back, and I'm just trying to find a good point to, to start off at. Uh, Maybe I, I should just start at the beginning. Can I throw well, a defense it, in I mean, there for it, the soundtrack yeah. of that movie that half those songs are pretty good? That's true. I mean, that that was a common uh, factor in the 90s where you would have a so-so movie, but usually it would have a pretty banging soundtrack. I mean, yeah. even Batman and Robin had a pretty good soundtrack. Yeah, uh, no, but on that soundtrack, uh, that Ben Foltz track is amazing. And the Foo Fighter one's pretty good, too. But anyway, um, yeah, I, so uh, I had a point, and then Steve started talking about Godzilla, and I lost it. Not, no, no, I'm joking. No, 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 no. That's what so, I'm here for. No, so, Steve, did, did, so did you know who designed the giant? Oh, that's a good piece of trivia that I don't know, actually. This is going to blow your goddamn mind. Was it Bruce Tim? No, it was Joe Johnston. Really? Yeah. He, oh, he, my God. Which, I mean, <laughs> considering that, you know, like The Rocketeer, which is a film I need to get back to, and I know that wasn't his, he directed it, but it wasn't, it, like, wasn't that, that was a comic before the film, I think? The uh, Dave Stevens comic, yeah. yeah. Yep. It, you could see some DNA there, but then you go and watch like, obviously like the stuff he did before that. And then you see first Avenger, which we're talking about Captain America. Yeah. Like he, he, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of through lines there. And then you look at that and you're like, just put a fin on his head. That's the Rocketeer, um, which I thought was amazing. So, so the guy who designed Boba Fett also designed the iron giant. Like how, how is that possible? He likes That's buckets. Crazy. He just likes buckets. That's what I'm just going to throw out there. <laughs> Um, so I also just want to point out too, that this was a, one of the first films to really blend, um, like uh, computer animation with hand-drawn and it is beautiful. And there was a system in place and I'm not smart enough to explain why or how, but they're able to like lay out all the, the hand-drawn things and, and kind of do almost like a camera placement. And while they're making the film, the dailies, uh, Brad Bird would go and show on a screen and use like a marker and draw on the screen to show people what he wanted to do. So there was a very small intimate group of people working on the film. Um, but that's, I want to mention one because they had a really small crew because Warner brothers had lost a lot of money on the road to El Dorado. Um, that sounds like they just blew money on like, you know, I don't know, hookers and blow or whatever the entire time. To El Dorado. Uh, it was, it was a quest for Camelot. Quest for Camelot. El Dorado was a DreamWorks. Okay. Sorry. Maybe you're right. I could be mistaken. No, though. no, no. You're, you're, 
it's 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 me talking. I'm wrong. So that's what's going on. <laughs> oh, oh, come yeah, on. Yeah. Either way, they lost a lot of money and they, they 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 reduced their animation staff by a great deal and they actually gave them a shorter turnaround time, which in hindsight Bird said was like stressful but better because then there was less input from the studio. They're like, could you just make this happen? And then they made it happen. But um, the one thing I want to mention is that because they were using computer animation at the time to animate the giant, they did something here called um, they would animate him on the twos or every other frame or 12 frames per second. So he didn't look as CG. So like it was a little bit more, and I can't explain the magic of why that happens. The only reason I'll mention is because um, like, again, uh, Steve's talking about star Wars. We've talked about Superman, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. They did a lot of different animating with that on the twos to not make it look so computer generated, but more comic Mm -hmm. booky. So, that's something that like they did as a conscious decision to not make him look so computery, but blend in. And th- there's just, can we talk about like just the, the look of the film and the look of like, I mean, cause also too, like then you have to edit this animated footage on top of this, like computer stuff. And how do you blend that at that time and generate that in a post without like the headaches must've been crazy. And this thing is seamless. Like you, you buy the two elements together, the computer generated, the hand drawn the entire time. And this film is gorgeous. Like, not that I wasn't expecting it to not look good, but, and I know like, so to be fair, I did see the, the, um, the updated special edition. Cause that's what Steve purchased. And I may or may have just used his password for voodoo and watched it. But this film is it just, it's gorgeous throughout. Like we, I, I meant to mention earlier talking about the town of Rockwell, Maine. Um, like just the, the autumn, like, oranges and yellows and how they pop and then slowly but surely the landscape changes towards we get to the end with the snowfall and everything gets more black and white and gray this film is visually amazing mm-hmm. oh it, it, it is absolutely gorgeous and it, it, it it's interesting at least from a character design perspective how they managed to blend more exaggerated uh, facial expressions, particularly on characters like Hogarth and then and uh, characters like Kent, with more traditionally human uh, looking characters, such as uh, uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s Dean, and that that it does really seem to have a nice blend of those of those particular styles that give it a very strong uh, sense of normalcy, which is what you want with when you especially when you have something as fantastic as the giant dropping into this. I mean, uh, Brad Bird said that he wanted to evoke the feeling of Norman Rockwell, which <laughs> that's why the name of the t- <laughs> of the town is what it was. So you're you're almost obliged to take a very stylized but still very grounded approach to the animation. Which is interesting to me that with, with the, the, the kid actor at the time, um, Eli Marenthal, I guess they would actually video record him delivering the lines and then they would send those videos to the animators to capture his emotion, like you said, which is actually very similar to what they did with the old Disney style where they would film the actress that was playing Snow White or Cinderella and they would animate based upon her physical movements. And that's why you still get that, that gravity while moving. Like, so again, like different mediums in terms of like technology advancing, but the same ideas are in place and that's great. And, um, before again, I'm going to keep pushing off talking about, um, uh, Kent Mansley because he's, (laughs) he's my favorite hated thing in this movie. Um, Harry Connick Jr. I I didn't expect his character of Dean Coppin McCoppin, to be like, I didn't expect that element of like beatnik and counterculture to show up as strong as it did. It was welcome, but I was surprised by it. I thought it was great. 
So I'm going to just jump in here real quick. Um, I completely agree with uh, your assessment of Harry Connick Jr.'s character. I will say um, it's one of the few things that it's not even a critique, but um, I sometimes have trouble with celebrities when they're doing animation because I can't get their voice out of my head as just being themselves. Um, it's unfortunate that both Jennifer Aniston and it has nothing to do with their performances, but just because they're so well known, I can't not see Jennifer Aniston or hear Jennifer Aniston as a person in her, uh, portrayal of Hagar's mother. Um, and, uh, I don't have that problem with Christopher McDonald. I actually <laughs> didn't realize that that was him uh, the first time that I watched it. Um, <laughs> so it does sort of take me a little bit out of it. But again, it's it's not their fault. Um, it's just that they have very well-known voices. So when they voice characters, it's very easy to conjure their images. And I'm sure that their marketing team, that's exactly what they wanted to do. Like 1999, I mean... Friends is the number one show in America, and you've got a movie with the star of one of them as the voice. So that's certainly, I understand, synergistic, if you will, from that point of view. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was, was you were talking about the look of the animation. Um, uh, <laughs> it's unfortunate. I understand it was to the benefit of uh, Brad Bird that they were cutting some of the uh, not the budget, but the animation department, because they left him alone more. But every time I hear that kind of thing talked about, like animations uh, or animation departments being cut or um, people who have this wonderful talent. Uh, and again, I'm going to diverge just a little bit. There's a wonderful document documentary about a, um animator by the name of, uh, I believe it's Floyd Norman, uh, who worked for Disney for like, 80 years or something ridiculous. Um, and just seeing his story and the wealth of knowledge he had about storytelling and finding out that he was cut at one point, it's just that thing always just sort of like they can spend, you know, a lot of money on this and that, but they'll cut these animation budgets. And I'm always annoyed when I hear those stories. And um, I was trying to think of what would be the perfect double feature to watch with, uh, the Iron Giant, and initially I thought DC's Final Frontier, which is an animated film that I love based on the comic by Darwin Cook, who was also also an animation guy who helped uh, do the adaptation for that story. But the more I think about it, I think of uh, the Fleischer Brothers Superman. Mm. Um, if you're looking for a visual comparison, like it's very... I wouldn't say close, but like one of the episodes, it's one, I think it's the first episode is called the mechanical monsters, um, has a very similar look to this. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's the old man in me, but anytime I see the style of animation, it brings like a warm feeling to me. Like, I feel like the town felt lived in the characters felt lived in. They had a house style that I, I was immediately attracted to because of the, the era and, the way that they were uh, animating the, the characters uh, or at least designing them. So 
Uh, I know I just threw a lot into one point, but uh, every once in a while I try to just jam everything I possibly can into one point so that I can be quiet for the next 10 minutes. I could definitely yeah, see that Fle- that Fleischer um, influence on this. And to kind of uh, bring it back to what you were talking about uh, with the phenomena of recognizable live action actors voicing animation, it, it can be a decidedly mixed bag. And the way I've tried to describe it in the past and why I tend to have a greater affection for dedicated voice actors versus celebrities that you bring in to do a voice largely comes down to a difference of approach. Insofar that a person who's used to acting on the screen, they can call upon a variety of tools at their disposal in order to sell their performance, to sell the emotion that they can draw upon the the pitch of their voice, the volume of their voice, their cadence, but they can also draw upon a multitude of physical characteristics that don't aren't always available when you're going into animation. Now a good voice actor somebody who has dedicated a lot of time and a lot of effort into that particular style can bring through those subtle vocal inflections through just, just through their voice and as such deliver a more nuance and a more appropriate for animation sort uh, delivery and uh, performance. And that's uh, to finally bring it back to what to the person we've been talking about all uh, along the way. That's why I think that uh, uh, Christopher McDonald does so well in this role that, yes, he's worked in live action for a long time, but he knows how to pitch his voice and how to uh, take his voice up a range of emotions. And all of them are dialed just slightly up that it works so organically with animation and it it fits a lot better than say a Harry Connick Jr. who does a decent job in this film, but he's not delivering his, uh, you definitely get the sense that he is an actor who's more used to delivering a performance, calling upon his physical attributes than simply delivering it with his voice. If that makes sense. I, I think that's fair. I think, um, I do think that the film puts him in a good spot to succeed in the sense of like there is um, I, 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 I want to make sure that I mentioned the humor in this film because the first like 80% of this movie is just it just it just hits you in the ribs. All you can do is help, but you can't help but laugh. Like I I knew this was going to be an emotional roller coaster when I, I started like because everybody's talked about it, uh, you know, leading into it. The shadow that this cast now is large. I did not expect to how many times I was like busting out laughing at this film. There's a sequence uh, after the midway point, whenever um, Hogarth does a cannonball and then um, that the giant does one as well. And this causes this big, huge blowback of water that forces uh, Dean and his, uh, his folding chair out in the, out in the, the roadway, which he would have been dead, but whatever it's a cartoon. And he's just like, he's just like sitting in the roadway holding his paper and the truck pulls up. He's like, Hey, you know, you're in the middle of the road. He's like, I know I'm in the middle of the road. Like there's something about the way he said that and the way they animated his character, like looking straight forward, still not talking to the, the guy in the truck is just so spot on and amazing. And again, I know it's just the line, but I feel like he did good enough with that. And there's a, there's other bits too, that they gave him the opportunity to like, uh, be the person that could put like the, the period on the end of the sentence and have a good joke. And I'm not saying that Harry Connick Jr. doesn't have charisma, 
but he needs support. Like, I don't ever go, you know what? I want to watch the Harry Connick Jr. movie. I'm like, no, there's only two I can think of now. One's Independence Day, and this is the <laughs> other one. Uh, he was good in Bug, if you ever saw that. Oh, wait, the, um, the, oh, shoot. The, was he in that with, um, flipping, um, movie with Ashley Judd and, uh, yeah. And, um, um, Michael Shannon. Yeah. Zod. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That, I forgot he was in that. No, that's a, that's a good movie. You're right. So, okay. You're right. There's three movies. I think isn't, of. uh, isn't copycat also, uh, is that What's Harry Connick Jr. It's copycat. Yeah. 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 Else? That was, okay. that was one of him. One I, of I've not seen that. Okay. So, yeah. Um, I thought he was, I thought he was okay, but you're right. You're right, Steve, that once you know who it is, but again, let, let, okay, let's, let's just, the, 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 the delight to me was Christopher McDonald as Kit Mansley and watching the film as a, I didn't know who the cast was outside of, um, Vin Diesel, which I know I made the joke about like, like when he's given a, a character that emotes, like has very few words, but again, for him to find like the, the, the soul and the character and the limited words that he had. Amazing. Same thing with Groot, right? Like you just, you love it. The guy gives his all and he actually knows how to like make you care. I, I love it. But Christian McDonald, it's funny because in my notes for cast and crew, the only thing I, other than Brad Bird, I made sure to note for Christian McDonald, I was like, Shooter McGavin. Got to mention that. Uh, he was Travis Cole in one of my favorite bad movies of all time, Dirty Work. He was the asshole in that movie, the Norm MacDonald film. Uh, and then also, Steve, you may not know, he's voiced Jor-El and Superman and Batman Beyond. I did not know that. So that's a nice connection with the whole like themes that's running through this, that he's actually voiced Superman and he's dead as well. So I thought that was great. I, I got nothing. That, well, that is actually pretty cool. I you, didn't know you, that. Um, <laughs> It's funny because, you know, the Happy Gilmore is always the thing that uh, I think of with him. Um, but I also don't know that I've ever seen him in a performance where I'm like, eh, like he's always good in whatever I see him in. Yeah. And I, I did not expect the malt shop scene in this whenever uh, Hogarth is smart enough to sprinkle, uh, you know, X-Lax uh, and mix it into his shake. And I didn't expect one that that was actually so. Uh, let me let me take a step back. There's two visual cues in this movie, at least. One is whenever uh, Kent Mansley leaves the Hogarth homestead to begin with, and you see the sign in the window that says "Room for Rent." And I like I looked at my wife. I was like, "He's going to rent that room." Like I'm not I'm not like smarter than the movie. It's like it gives you the vocabulary, it gives you the clues. You're going to figure this out. So when he shows up again, and then in the scene in the malt shop, you see a big sign for Coco Lax. I'm like, is that really what I think that is? And you see Hogarth mix it into the malt, and you just see uh, Mansley just be like, "This is so good," eating all of it. I'm like, they're going to do a Dumb and Dumber moment here. It's going to be amazing. Um, yeah, well, especially it, yeah. since he then. Uh, cuts into one of the the best uh, monologues of his uh, of his perf- uh, character and why he f- he serves as such a perfect encapsulation of that kind of paranoid fear where he's talking about you know the Sputnik flying up above and he's saying it's like you know who built it was it the Chinese was it the Russians was it the Canadians I don't care all I know <laughs> is that we didn't build it and that's reason enough to assume it's the worst and blow it up yeah, and then there's that whole wonderful, before we even get into the montage that happens after, which I was not expecting in this film at all, and it was a delight, when he, he has the room at the house, there's this like quick, like this, this boom, boom, boom thing of him like 
questioning Hogarth over and over and over again. That is wonderful. And he is so good in that thing, uh, that, that whole bit that upon reading later that Brad Bird was involved in the Simpsons, that has that kind of energy of like, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you another question. I'm going to ask you another question. It reminds me of the whole, like, can we go to the water park? No. Can we go to the water park? No. Like over and over and over again that I loved. And his, yeah, definitely. It was great. But then when he gets to the whole bit of like, um, him succumbing to the x and there's a brief uh, shot of Hogarth just gone from the, the malt shop, which is great. But you get this um, montage of, of, of Mansley going around the town collecting clues, and there's there's just a quick shot of him like having this look on his face of utter terror, and the guy points in the distance that he's talking to, to an outhouse. I lost my mind. I'm like, really? We're going there with this movie? It was so great. And uh, and I had to make a note last night. I paused the movie and looked at my wife. I was like, I have to write this down. She's like, really? I'm like, yeah. Shitter McGavin is what I wrote down immediately right after I love that. it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, I was just making a point about how much I love him in all of his performances, which I still do. Um, I'm just like scrolling through his... Uh, you know, his credits, and he was not in just one, but two, like, direct-to-video American Pie movies, which I'm like, wow, really? Like, that's surprising to me. So uh, I don't know that we're ever going to get to uh, cover the uh, direct-to-video American Pie <laughs> movies, but apparently Christopher McDonald was in at least more than one of them. Well, so, And Eugene Levy's in all which of is, them, yeah. Yeah, which is funny because Eli Marenthal, the, guy, the kid who voiced Hogarth, he was in American Pie too, as Stifler's younger brother. What? Shut up. Oh, really? God. That blows <laughs> my mind kidding. more than Joe Johnston designing the oh, giant. My, I'm done. Sorry, he was also in American Pie 1 as oh, Stifler's okay. younger brother. Oh, shit. Okay, wow. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> no, but like, like I just, um, you know, Mansley, just, I liked his character. Then also, the humor that shows in this movie early and often, like, there's a bit where he goes back to his car the first time, and there's already a bite taken out of it. Not expecting that. Well, and, and that is that yeah. is one of the that's the scene where it exhibits one of my favorite kind of Chris McDonaldisms, and it's 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 something that he will draw upon in his comedic styling because he's so good at playing kind of a smarmy little gu- guy, weaselly and everything, and you know so sure of himself, and he plays that. But then he has a tendency to seamlessly transition into a scream. <laughs> and he delivers it with such great comedic timing. It's like when he's getting into his car, it's like, oh, yeah, this is all done. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's the Shooter McGavin in, in him. And it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's something that he's utilized a lot in his comedic work. And it's something that he's so good at. And it's that kind of vocal mindfulness that I think uh, makes him very, very good in animation. Oh yeah, it was wonderful. Well, before we figured out it was him in the movie, like my wife was like, "I think that's Tim Allen." I'm like, "That's not far off." Like, I mean, the same kind of like, like shifting gears into outrage, but also being smug. So I could see why she was right about that. Um, but I was like, "No, that's Shooter McGavin." Like, I, I hate, I hate that my default is a character name as opposed to the actor. But I was super excited that he. And then he's so good, and his blatant lying to. Um, uh, Frazier's dad about uh, what was going on uh, was just so dark and screwed up where he's like, no, he killed the kid. You have to attack him. And it's like you, you actively know that's not the case, but you have been shit on this entire time and been made fun of that. You are so adamant now that you want the world to see what you think you see. And I think that's a lot more, um, that's, that's a lot more nuanced than you might get in a, a 
generally, and I know I made this talk comment earlier about uh, like an animated film that's supposed to go towards like a broad audience. Like there was, there was some depth here that I was not expecting and I, I should know better because I like Brad Bird and I, I'll, I'll say that the Incredibles is a better Watchmen film than Watchmen. Fight me. Fair enough. <laughs> One quick little uh, Christopher McDonald thing and uh, now it'll get stuck in your head. I've never been able to think of him in the same way ever since I read uh, Bruce Campbell's semi-autobiographical, uh, very, very fictional book, Make Love the Bruce Campbell Way, where he states that he has a loathing for Christopher McDonald because Christopher McDonald always gets the roles that Bruce Campbell goes out for. I forgot about that. Uh, so now, anytime you see Christopher McDonald in something, you'll be imagine. How would Bruce Campbell be in that? Oh, God. I, I kind of like I was talking to my wife about this, too. I was like, if they're ever to do a live action remake of this, which seems like that's the thing now is always take something to make it again. Um, and, and I'm going to throw a name out there. And maybe you guys both know what I'm talking about. Like the character of of um, of Kent Mansley. I could see Jordan Klepper playing that role right now. And it would be amazing to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Not familiar with Jordan Klepper. He is a... a um, he he's done correspondence work for the daily show and he's like this tall, oh, okay. tall guy with that kind of hair. And he has that. Kind oh of, yeah. Like, I know, you know him. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's like, not that I'm saying that you couldn't have Christopher McDonald play the role again, but it's like, I'd want him and I'd want like a 12 year old, um, freaking, um, Tom Holland playing the lead in this. Like you do realize he's in his twenties. Right? I know. Right. But it's just like, he still looks like he's 15 <laughs> years old. I know. Um, I know, I know he's super young. I get it. You know, he can still do it. He can play the kid. It'd be fine. No, he can't. He's no, a grown no, man. No, no, get him. And you can probably still get Jennifer Aniston to be the mom. It's fine. It's fine. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we've established we can do that, but you know, still, <laughs> come on. He's a grown man. The one thing I was going to say about Christopher McDonald and uh, when uh, El Goro was talking about uh, just the, the voice characteristics of Chris McDonald and his acting, it made me think uh, it's on... I don't know, one of the Batman the Animated Series extras where uh, voice director uh, Andrea Romano was talking about casting, and she said that she liked to uh, cast actors who were had uh, a voice of character as opposed to actors who were trying to do a voice. And I think that's Christopher McDonald to a T. I think that uh, he's got a, uh, a voice that he can change and do different dramatic things with and do comedy with and take all these different directions. But I think that, uh, when it comes down to, he's so good at all the different things that he does. I mean, yes, he's really great at playing the slimy shit, but at the same time, he, he, he can do drama. He can do comedy. He can do all these different things. And I think that that's what makes him a great voice actor, not only uh, a good or a great, um, you know, physical actor, but also a great voice actor. Well, had he been around in 57, you know, he'd been the lead in some of the stuff like that was going on at the time. Like he would have been like that, the super serious, like, you know, hero character and some of the sci-fi stuff. So like his voice and oh, presence definitely. is just, it just fits so good. And, um, and this is not to begrudge anybody else in the movie, but like, I was like, we need to talk about him because like, he's just one of those guys that everybody knows him. Everybody wants to punch him in the face because he's that guy. Like everybody just wants to punch him in the face. He's probably the nicest guy in the world, but he plays that guy and he does it to a T. And I loved him in this movie, and he was a delight. But again, not expecting an entire montage of him running to various places. And literally, at one point, he's shitting behind a bush or finishing shitting behind a bush. 
They showed that. They, and that was not the only time in the movie in which pants were coming off in the film. Like there was an earlier bit where a squirrel <laughs> escapes into a diner. And there's also a bit when uh, Hogarth's uh, decision to try to hide the fact that a giant robot hand was lazily like spooling toilet paper in a bathroom by itself, which was an amazing gag is that he was pretending that he was in the bathroom as to upset his mom and uh, Mansley. Like just some of the choices here that they're funny and they still work. It's just like, you wonder, like I'm not, it's not, none of it's not questionable, but it's like, that's a human reaction. And I loved it. Like I just, this film tickled me and made me smile and laugh throughout until the point where it's like, by the way, here's your heart. Goodbye. And then, you know, it just, it destroys you, which that's the point. It makes you like the, the film I want to equate it to. It's once come well after this because everybody knows the roadmap. Now it reminds me of a lot of how to train your dragon because you have the unknown, like the fearful entity out there that is now like slightly hobbled. So he has to form a bond with somebody that is like on the bubble about like our dragons bad or not. And then you have to convince the populace that like, Hey, this isn't the case. Like this, this film feels like how I train your dragon. And again, I know it's reversed because I've seen that movie multiple times and I just, I love it. And I love that series, but it's, it's, they've taken the good lessons from all this. You could tell that people who watched that film or made that movie have watched the iron giant. Like, and it's a it's a it's a good roadmap to follow. Yeah, I'm 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 certain that this, while this was not a financial success, you know, it it did not make its budget back in the box office. Mm-hmm. It was very much a flop, but it certainly found its audience. I think a big part of that audience were other animators, and it came from you know Brad Bird being one of them, and him actually being able to have the freedom to create. And thankfully, that we've again arrived in a position where people who have now grown up watching things like the iron giant are the people that are kind of making the, or calling the shots on the, on uh, subsequent projects or people that are contemporaries of Brad bird. They are in the positions of power in order to make these kinds of films. I mean, certainly the, as we, we said before, the roadmap of the iron giant existed prior to it, but it was presented in such a compelling way that we, I truly believe that it had an add on effect in a multitude of different things. I mean, you can draw comparisons between this film and another uh, Vin Diesel film of Guardians of the Galaxy, particularly of uh, the character of Groot and the presentation of him and the heroic sacrifice that he has. The Iron Giant, it, it, you can find its DNA in a lot of different properties that followed. Yeah, it feels like Pixar before Pixar in a lot of ways, you know, like, and in uh, the best way possible. But yeah, um, this film was like just a... Um, it was a delight, and it's it's like it's so far my favorite film I've watched of this year. Which I'm not I'm, my movie watching is kind of down. I don't know. I'm, I've been moving into a house; it's been tough. Um, but this was just wonderful from start to finish, and it's probably one of my favorite movies I've seen in the past couple of years. And I'm so glad that we did this. And this was just me kind of thrown out as like, let's just watch the Iron Giant. I don't know. I'll cry some. This film's so much more than that. And thank you to Steve for uh, wanting to be okay with that. And thank you for Goro for wanting to talk about it because this film is, it is, it is just, I mean, I'm, it, it's amazing and it's wonderful. And I, I need to own this on uh, Blu-ray. And I want to mention too, real quick, the version I watched with the special edition, which actually had two additional scenes added that I did not know about. And actually one other change too, I want to mention real quick. 
the bit where the hand is lounging in the living room watching TV, which I don't know how hands do that, but whatever, he's a robot from space, not questioning it. Uh, the screen shows a flash of Tomorrowland and the special edition. I did not know that that was a special thing. And I was like, oh, shit, Brad Bird's all been about Tomorrowland before this. It was added <laughs> later because he couldn't get the rights to do it. And I'm like, ah, maybe I should watch that movie. I know I've joked about it, but I thought that was kind of a fun nod. And then also um, the dream sequence, which I think is actually really important to the film. When, when the giant dreams and you see the hellscape that he's in and being a part of an army was storyboarded, but not added until the special edition, which I think it's an important part of the film. Not that it takes away from anything else, but I think it helps inform when you figure out that he knows that he's a threat. I think that sequence is amazing. And then there's also a bit later with, um, with, uh, the mother and, um, uh, Coppin, McCoppin, where they, I think, I think it's after the iron giant was sitting still as art, which I thought was really funny. And she's like, it looks like he slapped stuff up there. I don't know about that. I like your other work better. I think that was added to show that like, Oh, she likes my art. I think that was added. I could be wrong about that. Uh, that stuff was in the original version okay. because I've yet to see the signature edition. Oh, but that, okay. I watched the just uh, the regular theatrical for this one, and that that's that uh, dialogue was definitely in there. So, was there a sequence at the end with the the, the um, statue that uh, McCoppin yes. made? Okay, and she like, that he built it. Okay, there's the whole thing too, where she's like, "Oh, it's it's your good work, but maybe not your best." He's like, "What are you talking about?" Like, there's there's little bits in there that they add together. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, the whole bit of like the hand watching and sees Tomorrowland, I thought that was kind of funny. But there's a dream sequence that you need to find because it's amazing. Because the robot yeah, starts I, I, dreaming. I've been intending yeah. to pick this up on Blu-ray. I just had oh. for some reason or other just never pulled the trigger on it. Yeah, it's good. Um, mostly because the DVD is still holding up very very well, which you can't say about every DVD out there. But I definitely this is one that I've been intending to upgrade for some time, and the fact that there's additional footage available with on the Blu-ray that's certainly going to make me pick it up sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's a delight. So, thank you, Steve, for buying the specialized edition and me, and, and let me pirate the the hell out of uh, your uh, account for Voodoo, and then you know whatever else you have there, um, including um, Orca or whatever else we're watching on there. Um, yeah, so the only thing I want to mention, too, is that you, you guys have alluded to this was a box office failure. Warner Brothers didn't know what they had, and um, because they were also worried because of Quest for Camelot, you're right, that was the movie, I was wrong, take a drink. Um, they didn't give it the supports that it needed, and they actually had a deal in place to make toys for Burger King to promote the movie, but they waffled on it, so the film just kind of showed up, and it didn't do so hot, and it dropped out of the top ten pretty fast. Uh, this was 1999. I just want to throw out there. Uh, it opened the same weekend as Sixth Sense, by the way, which that's the Sixth Sense was a juggernaut, but it didn't do so well the first week. It built, built steam. Uh, before we wrap up our conversation here, Steve, do you know what the number one film in 1999 was? 1999. Uh, it's near and dear. Wild, it's, Wild Wild West? No. <laughs> Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> Wild Wild West is 14th. Come on, Steve. Oh, uh, wow. Dig deep. How did dig, I even know that it came out in 99, though? Dig, that's, dig that's deep, sad Steve. Thing. Why am I asking oh, you? Oh, God. It was Phantom Menace. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say. Oh, God. Yeah. So, so um, the Iron Giant's much lower, but let me run through the top 10 here real quick. Um, actually, I'll do, the, I'll do the top 20, just because you're going to be like, oh, that came out then? Yeah. Star Wars 1, um, Episode 1, Phantom Menace. Sixth Sense, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me was number three. Toy Story 2, and like so I said Pixar before Pixar. I lied. 
Pixar is existing. Pixar, like, Toy Story 2 made like uh, 199 million uh, local, like domestic. Uh, the Matrix came out that year. Tarzan, another animated film. Big Daddy. Um, remember when Am Sailor was a box office draw? Uh, the Mummy, Runaway Bride, The Blair Witch Project, Notting Hill, The World Is Not Enough, Double Jeopardy, Wild Wild West at 14. Analyze this. The General's Daughter. Did, nobody remembers that movie. All I remember about that movie is that Meg, Meg Ryan dies over and over again, so it's pretty great. Um, is that John Travolta? Yes. Yep. Okay. They do all these flashbacks. I'm like, it's it's my second favorite Meg Ryan movie behind City of Angels where she dies too, but the general's daughter, she dies over and over again. That's thrown out there. 17's American Pie, which I guess had, you know, um, really? That came out the same year as Iron Giant. So the younger brother was the voice. That's weird. All right. Spectre Gadget was 18. No one remembers that movie. Shakespeare in Love, your eventual Oscar winner. Sleepy Hollow was number 20. So, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I saw I Sleepy, love Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. That's a good, That's movie. A good yeah. one. Yeah, I mean it's no Wild Wild West, but it's still pretty good. No, no, <laughs> no mechanical spiders get fought in a uh, Sleepy Hollow. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, Star Wars kind of smashed everything. But then uh, the Sixth Sense, just I yeah, that thing built. Uh, like people were like, "Have you seen it?" And I remember that. So. Yeah, I mean, same way with Blair Witch when you think about oh, it. God. I mean, yeah, everybody uh, kind of. It was one of those weird cultural touchstone films, which we don't always have, but you know, find me somebody who didn't see something like um, Blair Witch or the sixth sense. I mean, I don't think a lot of people talk about it, but 1999 was a very big year for mainstream horror. That and, and for mainstream animation too. Like, uh, sure. Like just mentioning that in the top, top, top 20. And like, I mean, not that this is as big, but like the South park movie came out the same year. Like there was a yeah. lot uh, that came out and uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate. And then also another film dealing with uh Sputnik October sky came out that year too. Um, uh, speaking of South yeah. park, uh, I, the, the hilarity of, of that is especially since you mentioned the general's daughter. So there was a big, I, I don't guys know if you guys remember uh, summer of 99 when um, South park, bigger, longer and uncut came out, but there was a big focus upon theaters preventing children from getting in and seeing South park. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. So, I, I I went to the movies with my dad and my sister and I wanted to see South Park and they didn't want to see it. So they wanted to go see the general general's daughter. So my dad went up and he's like one for South Park, uh, two for general's daughter. And then he, you know, the ticket taker looked at us and it's like, who's seeing South Park? And my dad said, Oh, I am. He's like, Oh, okay. So, you know, he sold the tickets. <laughs> so this ticket taker was perfectly okay. Selling tickets to a 14 and a 16 year old to a film that features a very graphic rape sequence. But God forbid a 14 year old be allowed to see a movie where Satan has anal sex with Saddam Hussein, because clearly that's going to corrupt my mind. (laughs) I mean, it clearly fucking did. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Um, So I just want to throw out here. The iron giant was the 85th highest uh, grossing film of the year. Um, uh, baby geniuses did better. Screw that. Uh, Dogma oh, did better too. At least that's good. Mystery Men did better. So I mean, I love Mystery Men. The film. Uh, let's see here. Ed TV was just below that, which I saw that in the theater. I don't remember anything about it. Uh, and the Faculty was eighty-eight. So yeah. Uh, Galaxy Quest was ninety-four. Think about that for a second. That movie's grown bigger over time too. 
Yeah, ninety nine was actually a pretty big year. People always talk about the eighties, but I think ninety nine is actually pretty solid for a lot of good movies. I have like six points I want to just cover real quick before I go off into tangents. Um, first one is uh, uh, oh god, now I'm losing it. Uh, oh, uh, Blair Witch uh, Project and um, Sixth Sense. People love to shit on those movies right now, but man, uh, those movies were huge when they came out, and they huge. blew everyone away. And they were like, they still, I they still kind of hold the stand up. Sixth Sense certainly. Yeah, and I actually think that. Blair Witch is still a very clever use of the found footage. I mean, it's the first, I shouldn't say it's the first real found footage, but it, it caught people off guard. It, it uses so much of its uh, sound effect and, and uh, the, the fact that you don't see things. And it's. It practically it was, created a subgenre of horror. Oh, for yeah, sure. And just, it, like, it, just like an argument could be made that there were slashers before Halloween. Right. Let's be fair. The the slashers of the '80s were ripping off Halloween. The uh, found footage boom of the 2000s. They were ripping off Blair Witch Project. They oh, weren't yeah. uh, ripping off Last Broadcast. They weren't ripping off Cannibal Holocaust. They were ripping off Blair Witch Project. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm always surprised when people are like, "Oh, Blair Witch Project." That's something. It's like you know when that movie came out, like it blew a lot of people's minds, mine included. Like I saw it opening weekend, not knowing anything about it. And I didn't know what the hell I'd seen. I walked out of it. And I'm like, Oh my God, that movie's crazy. Like, I can't believe how much they achieved by showing me very little and just having effective sound effects. So, uh, I just wanted to throw a little bit of love out there for both those movies. And I think, yes, Shyamalan has, you know, projects that not everybody loves. And, he definitely has problems sometimes creatively, but Sixth Sense is still a very strong film uh, and blew everyone's mind in 99. Uh, second thing that I wanted to mention is, is that uh, I know people with Iron Giant tattoos. I know people who collect toys. This is a beloved movie. Like, obviously, we're now in a culture where people don't go simply by box office unless it's the current year. But when it comes to this film... I think that this movie has a huge following. And with that in mind, I'm kind of surprised Warner Brothers, and I don't want to put this in their head at all because I don't <laughs> want to see it, but uh, I'm surprised they haven't gone on the route of um, Jungle Book, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, any Disney animated film that are turning into live action. I don't necessarily want to see a live action version of it, but I would love to see them do something with the amount of love that there is out there for this movie, whether it be a, a animated sequel or something like, I don't want to see a live action version of it, but no, we want, I, I we want Tom Holland it. playing the part of Hogarth. That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but guys, he had a cameo in uh, ready player oh, one. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Using his guns, no less. Ugh. Now, now that I'm aware of how much he did not want to be a gun that pisses me off more, which is like, <laughs> that's like throwing like more lava into a, like a, just a, like a vault, like a volcanic explosion. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you, at least really... you can't blame Ernest Klein for that because originally that was going to be Ultraman. You're right. That's, that's a, that's a better upgrade. I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah. The shining, that's a book kids know. Um, anyway. Um, so 
no, Steve, you're right. So you had two, did you, do you have four more points that you want to make? Cause you said, six. no, no, no. <laughs> I just, I often go on a tangent. So I try to get out my points before I go into something weird. Oh, so. no. So that's, that's it. Let's just, uh, I think maybe we should wrap this up. I, uh, so I know normally with our Euro stuff, we have like a bunch of questions. So the only, the only barometer question we have right now is, uh, like there's two, one, would you recommend it? Which I'm, we'll give our chance to, to say yes. And then is this better than the film wizards was the first one we watched for the year. Um, I'm just gonna say, yes, this is better than wizards. I know wizards, it's its, its own thing. And I'm sure El Goro will give reasons for why wizards is a uh, worthy of a watch, but Steve and I don't feel the same way. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's better than wizards. It was good for what it was. <laughs> sure. Uh, so Steve, is this better than wizards? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I still so disappointed. I wanted to love wizards, and I, I maybe uh, you know later in time I'll, I'll revisit it again and I'll find something a little bit more to dig. Because there, our discussion on it, I do I do remember there were things that we we both liked, but yeah, it ended. There's some problems with it. So <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately, you know what? I still like wizards more than the last unicorn. I'll say that. Oh, snap. Look at that. Wow. Okay, fair. No, no, like uh, Steve did not like the last unicorn either. Uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of that, but I don't know that I put it below wizards. I can't remember if I did or not, but yeah, those have been my two low points for the year so far. So okay, that's I, maybe the better barometer is, is it better or worse than transformers? The movie. <laughs> or, or we go straight for the juggler and ask, ask, is it better or worse than secret of Nim? Oh shit. I, I think that I think they both succeed in different ways because they are both pushing animation and mm-hmm. they both found a heart that I don't know that the original source material, though limited because I've not read either, didn't find. So I feel like this I feel like the Iron Giant owes a, owes a lot to Don Bluth because again when, with Brad Bird also bitching about uh Disney not pushing boundaries, he did too, but I think they both found like a emotional core that that weren't necessarily there with both stories as they were originally. So, I can see that. Yeah. That's my cop out answer. So I like them both. Why not both? That's my, that's my answer. <laughs> so uh, would I recommend this movie a thousand percent? Like I, again, I think the reasons why I didn't see this is because it was 99. I was um, like 2021 20, uh, working at a music park when it came out. So I didn't have time to go see the kid movie though. I did see final fantasy spirits within the theater. I was one of the seven people that did. Um, so I, I just, it never, it never was on my radar. And then even working at blockbuster for years, I was like, man, and I just never got to it. I don't know why shame on me. This movie's a delight and a visual, like, it's, it's just amazing through and through. And if people have not watched this, I know we've spoiled a lot of it. I don't think we've spoiled the joy that's in this film there. It just, it is in every, in every frame. It's, it's a delight. And I, and I love this movie and I'm going to, I'm going to physically own it. Um, and I'm going to watch it and then, um, cry by myself like a lot because this movie's great and I love it. So maybe yeah, yeah, I think uh, if you're going to pick it up on Blu-ray too, it's pretty cheap. I think it's probably in the nine to $10 range on Amazon right now. So you can get it pretty cheap. Yeah. So do you guys recommend it? I'm going to guess you do. Oh, oh a, th- yeah. a thousand percent. Yeah. Okay. For Sweet. all the reasons that we've gone into uh, that, it's, it is a- an amazing film that loses none of its potency Again, you can go in completely knowing everything about this film, and it's still going to find a way to connect with you. It was—it's one of those few 
I, uh, perfect films in my in my opinion, and it needs to be seen by everybody who is a fan of not only animation but just good storytelling. And uh, one other thing, I this was a point that I was going to bring no, you up. You had six track. points, Steve. You can't. Uh, know. <laughs> the uh, the scene where Hogarth gets espresso uh, is <laughs> amazing. Yes, and I, I I guess per the trivia, that's the one that uh, Bird uh, animated himself to make sure okay. to get everything right. Yeah. I just, again, this film's smart and just the, like, even though it's set in 57, it doesn't feel it uh, again. Th- th- this is a point I want to make real quick before we get to the wrapping up and everybody pimping everything. Um, it is, it is wistful for a normal Rockwell time, but I don't think it paints it with like rose colored glasses other than Hogarth's experience where he's a kid and you see everything from his experience, but you get the notion that his mom, like I guess there's a, a photo of their of her husband and his father that was in the war. He didn't quite make it. I guess that's implied. But she's a single mom and she struggles. And um, he's sometimes problematic because he brings in random animals to the diner, which I think is funny too. Um, they don't shy away that the the time didn't have its problems and difficulties. It's just, but there's still a sense of wonder and joy. So it feels very Spielbergian there, but it doesn't like it doesn't completely whitewash the entire thing of like, oh, it was so much better than it's like. No, this was '57, and now there's a robot eating cars, and he and he threw that one car so far out, we don't know where it landed after he bit into it. It could have killed people. It could have killed somebody. We don't know, <laughs> right? And then him jumping into the quarry. There, there could have been innocence lost. We don't know that either, but I like that it was a delightful story, but it didn't try to be like, it was just better back then. It was more like, no, this was the right place in time to tell this story. And that was refreshing to me. So there you go. That's my thought process. All right. Well, I think yeah. on that topic of nostalgia, I, I just want to say real quick. Yeah. I don't think it sugarcoats. Um, I see a lot of, and I think, uh, El Goro put it best earlier when he said that, uh, uh, the internet is filled with garbage people, but, you know, I see a lot of memes <laughs> that are like, can't we just, you know, go back to the way it was in the 1950s? And it's like, no, we can't. Cause they weren't great. Like there are great things that happened in the fifties. Sure. But like, if you look at it as an era, there's a lot that's not good going on. Yeah. Um, and I think, one of the best examples of that is is uh, uh, the uh, movie. I was going to say video. The movie that they have to watch about you know duck and cover. Yeah, we didn't you talk know, about that. You're right. You were not going to survive a nuclear blast by hiding under your desk. You know no. what I mean? Like <laughs> it's just it's just to prov- it's just to make you uh, think that you have a chance, so you won't panic as much. <laughs> yeah, uh, the fifties were while they may have been a wonderful time for say science fiction and things like that, they were a pretty damn scary time as well. So that's that's my two cents. I I, I got nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's going to discussion. Do it for our discussion about the Iron Giant. Uh, uh, I always say Mister the El Goro, which that, that would actually translate to Mister the the Goro. Um, exactly. Thank you for coming on the show and classing up the joint. You always uh, keep us on track, and as opposed to Steve and I just wandering off talking about sandwiches and things, whatever we do, it's it's uh, always a delight, and it's always so good to talk to you about movies because. Anytime I know that you're involved, I get excited and then I go like, not that I don't do research for what we're about to talk about, but I'm just like, I better do my goddamn homework. That's, I always try to to make sure that I'm ready because you know, and you enjoy the conversation and I want to come in fully loaded with alcohol as well. That's what I'm getting at. 
Fair enough. Well, uh, as always, it was absolutely my pleasure. And thank you once again for uh, having me on the show. This was great. And, uh, yeah, just, um, just tell everybody how they can find you and what you do, which I mean, you you know, your show is, uh, much, much more, um, known than, than our own, but please <laughs> let everybody know about your wares and how you I don't know about them. that. Yeah, oh, <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Anyway, uh, if you want to hear more from me, I, I do a, a weekly movie podcast called Talk Without Rhythm. You can find it on pretty much everywhere that you can get uh, podcasts, except Spotify, because I don't trust them. Anyway, uh, the main <laughs> website is tworpodcast.blogspot.com, um, or you just do search for Talk Without Rhythm. You'll find me. As I would mentioned before, right now I'm in the middle of my anime shun month, where I'm focusing on a lot of kind of darker anime from the 80s and 90s, my uh, self-appointed sweet spot. Spot. But uh, yeah, I've been doing it for 10 years. There's 520 uh, episodes available to you. A lot of content out there. Most of it's terrible, but uh, you know, it's a thing. <laughs> so, so teasing what, what's coming ahead for you uh, the next month or so. Uh, well, uh, after I fit, wrap up animation, cause I got one more episode left on that. I'll be back onto the Patreon picks because one of the things I do for my Patreon supporters is that if they support at higher tiers, they have the opportunity to book future episodes of the show. And there's some interesting picks coming up. Uh, we got s- some, uh, Uh, South Korean horror films. We got some excellent old Roger Corman science fiction movies. We got some comedy in there. Uh, Yeah, we got a wide variety of stuff that is coming up, including uh, uh, one episode from uh, some person that might be on this podcast right now. Yeah. um, And one, one's a really interesting movie. I want to get back to. And the other one is uh, one full of puppets that I have questions about. We'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, no, hope, yeah, hopefully when, when, by the time we get to that, uh, yeah, by the way, uh, to, uh, we're not, we're not going to bury the lead. Paul's going to be coming on the show in July to discuss, uh, two Peter Jackson films from his, uh, pre Lord of the Rings era of, uh, 1989's meet the feebles and 1996's the frighteners. And hopefully by the time that comes around, uh, Jackson's promise for the 4k trend, uh, restoration of meet the feebles will finally be out, but I doubt it because he <laughs> announced that a long time ago and we've heard nothing ever since. Yeah. I, I may or may not have a bootleg of that. And that, I, I, yeah. I think anybody who's been yeah. to a horror convention has a bootleg of that. <laughs> so yeah, that'd be, that'll be a lot of fun. So yes, please people check out talk about rhythm. It's amazing. And you also, it's a high wire act that the mainly, uh, El Goro does by himself which blows my mind because if i didn't have steve here i would just it would get it would just be it would be like me just like turning over and like just i would just be in a wagon i just turn over immediately like it'd be bad like i couldn't ford the river we'd we'd all be dead so uh but yeah check out his podcast it's amazing and um and steve how can people find you and then we'll pimp our show uh i just want to also real quick uh thank al goro for coming on uh, I'll say it uh, now. I, I'm always nervous whenever you're on because I feel like I got to up my game and then I just completely fall on my keys. So, uh, oh, not at all. For coming on and cl- classing up the joint. Uh, you know, because I, I, again, I've mentioned it uh, earlier. I do tend to go off on tangents. Um, but uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, I still have to figure out what my Patreon pick is going to be for you this year. Um, every time I think I've got something, I realize that you've already done it. So, um, I'm still searching for that thing. So hopefully I'll, I'll get it in before the end of the year. If not, I'll just have to figure out something for next year. But, uh, for those of you, uh, if you do listen to our show and you don't listen to talk about rhythm, please do. It's one of the best movie podcasts out there. You, you're not going to find somebody as 
knowledgeable uh, or more knowledgeable than El Goro on this subject. And, so, and thoughtful. That's what I want to point out. That's yeah. a big deal. Thoughtful. Yeah. People, yeah. People Whereas, can, like, my commentary you. is like, I like movies. Um, <laughs> no, no. People can wield <laughs> people can wield knowledge like like a blunt instrument, and it's like great. You know a lot. But without context and without introspection, it means nothing. And that's why I enjoy Talk Without Rhythm, because there's always context. Whether or not you agree with his review of a film, which um, that sounds like I disagree. I don't. But because uh, I, I am um, I'm a sheep at best. But I'm just making a statement of like you put the thought and you consider. And I think that's different than just like pushing your glasses up and being like, well, I know this, you know, like it was Quest for Camelot, you know, whatever. Like, you know, just throw that out there. So, um, yeah. I take the hard line, like, you know, movies like The Empire Strikes Back, which is real divisive. So, uh. <laughs> dude, yeah. dude, out of my top, I was looking on Letterboxd and they had like, you know, name your favorite films. I still have Conan the Barbarian listed as one of my favorite films. So come on. <laughs> Conan the Barbarian is pretty amazing, though. Yeah, I mean, so. it's, it's I, no, it, I, it actually has very deep Wagnerian themes, but anyway. <laughs> It's no, it's it's no a tour, but I mean it's still pretty good. But all right, all right. So all right, you guys can find us on Invasion of the Podcast. We have a Facebook page. I uh, see post things there about Star Wars sometimes. I um, I, I post things post in like three years, and, and I it's like I also we used to have a blog, and I've the wheels have fallen off that. But if you want to see uh, my thoughts about some canon stuff, some uh, Italian knockoff stuff, some westerns that will key into later, what we're about to talk about. You guys, the Invasion of the Podcast I can read about our writings and things, and we have a that just read it. It's great. Um, you can uh, find us uh, wherever you get your podcast, rate and review us. Would be greatly appreciated. So yes, next week uh, we're gonna like, we're gonna start the month of June off. Like uh, El Goro has his uh, animation. Uh, June is a short word, so I have no clever wordplay. I'm gonna force Steve to watch some westerns because I have been hankering for some westerns, and his knowledge base isn't as big. That implies that mine is. It really is not. But I want him to watch some Westerns because I think there's some good worth and depth there. We're going to start off with 1966's Django. It is um, a spaghetti Western. It's Italian. It has my favorite man crush right now, Franco Nero, and one of the best opening songs ever to film. Steve has not seen this. Uh, I'm not going to talk about anything else that happens in the film because there's some fun surprises. Uh, I cannot wait to talk about Django. It's going to be great. And I hope Steve enjoys it because if he doesn't, we're no longer doing this podcast and the show's over. So that's well, I do love spaghetti. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. That's going to do it for us this week. You could do nothing but Django films and call it Jungo. Jungo with the D, though. It'd be the Jungo. The (laughs) Jungo. Oh, that would get weird. I like it. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's going to do it for us this week. Again, thank you, Al Goro, for joining us on the show and talking about the Iron Giants. Everybody have a safe week. And um, I don't know. Um, don't trust small children giving you X-lax, possibly sprinkles and Sundays. That's what I'm going to say there. <laughs> that's it for the show. Bye. <laughs>